up? Word up. Man, you guys are well alive this morning. I could, tell in the, I could tell in the music that you guys were ready to roll, right? So yeah, my name is Chris. I'm on staff here as part of the teaching team. That song is um, it's kind of the flagship song for our family right now. I'm no longer a slave to fear. My wife um, came across it um, as she was diagnosed with cancer, and so it's kind of been the flagship of our family. Um, I think she's progressed further along in it than, than I have, um, if that's any indication of this morning. And so I just want to kind of let you know, a lot of you guys have asked how she's doing. Like, <clears throat> is, she, is she good? Is she healthy? How's she feeling? Um, she's actually going to be here next week to teach. So, so she's, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Now, she's not, um, she's not strong enough to sit up here and teach three services, and so we had to videotape her. And so we videoed her last week. Jake Brom videotaped her last Wednesday. He edited it on Friday and sent it out. And so she's going to be on the silver screen next week, and we'll kind of teach in and out of her. Is that cool? So, yeah. So, man, yeah. So if you're interested in knowing how she's walking through this, like what the Lord is teaching her, then, uh, man, um, that'll be next week. Cool? Cool. All right. And so uh, before we get going any further, like my, my, my gifting here, like I, I love to teach. All right. At the same time, I know that you you don't really learn anything until you're teaching it. All right. And so the the three pieces of teaching, number one is like information download. Right. Like we've talked about this information download is like when you have to get information, you don't learn it that way. Right. Step two is you've got to apply it at some level. And so once you've applied it, all right, you've kind of crossed the mark. Once you begin to teach what you've applied in your life, you become a teacher of it, okay? It's this way in every university. It's got to infiltrate the church as well, all right? This is why that I do hand motions for where we've come thus far, all right? I know you're like, oh, the hand motions. But I'm telling you, in a year from now, you'll be like, man, I'm glad I learned the hand motions to this, all right? Helps you put the word in line, so that when you read it in the New Testament, the Old Testament will make sense, and vice versa. So if you want to stand with me, I'm going to walk you through it one time, all right? And then the second time, we'll do it together, all right? And so if you want to walk with me, just kind of do the hand motions with me. Here we go. It's creation, fall, flood, nations, Terah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Wrestled with God, Israel, Joseph, Egypt, 400 years, Moses, let my people go, 10 plagues, Red Sea, law, Moses dies, Joshua, promised land, Judges, Kings, 16 books of the Old Testament, all right? You want to do it together one more time? All right, let's do it together one more time. Here we go. Creation, fall, flood, nations, Terah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, wrestled with God, Israel, Joseph, Egypt, 400 years. Moses, let my people go. 10 plagues, Red Sea, law. Moses dies. Joshua, promised land. 
Judges, Kings. 16 books of the Old Testament, yeah? Man, and you guys can have a seat. You did a great job. The, the actuality is what will happen is the kings will split the land of Israel. And from that point on, Israel will, will spend the rest of the Old Testament trying to reclaim its glory that it will never reclaim. All right? That's for another day. All right? Today, we're moving into young David. All right? And I've, I've chosen out of all the things of young David to teach David and Goliath. And so a lot of you may be going, oh, man, I've heard this story a million times. Can I encourage you just to lean in today? And maybe hear it from a different perspective. All right? Man, there's a tremendous amount of information in here. I've had to cut a lot of it out to make sure that we can fit inside our time slot. And so I'm just going to ask the Lord to come hang with us this morning. All right? To guide the words that I will not say something stupid, that I don't want to get hung up on talking about stuff that doesn't matter. Because I do that a lot. <laughs> and that I would speak only the things that matter to you for your push, you know, for your movement in the Lord, right? Like if anything you're going to learn at New City Church, if this is your first time, our heart is for you. Like we are for you, just like the Lord is for you. Being for you doesn't always mean we tell you what you want to hear, all right? We preach for his glory and that is for you, all right? So I'm just going to ask the Lord to come hang with us and we'll get started, cool? And so Jesus Lord, I would ask you to come and make your presence thick in here. Lord, I know what your word says. I know you're here and you are as real as each one of us. Lord, I ask that you would guide my mouth to not say stupid things. Father, I would ask that your spirit open the hearts of the men and women so they don't just listen, but they hear. Lord, I would ask more than anything that if you're going to use me for today today to do anything, to reveal you to them. Like to reveal you to them and who you are how you roll and what you do. And Lord, we would, we would learn to continue to fall in love with you. That we would be people who are set apart. Lord, we praise your name for calling us home and for the people in this room. And everyone in this house said, amen, amen. <clears throat> so here we go. If you got a Bible, we're going to be in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, David and Goliath. We're going to kind of set the stage here for you if, you, if, if we will, all right? It says, verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war, assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched camps at Eph's Diamond between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. All right? And so if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, we just said a bunch of words that I probably didn't pronounce correctly. All right? But the, the beauty of this is that historically this hasn't changed. Like, if you want to hop on Google Maps, right, and pull up the valley of Elah, this is what it looks like on the screen. All right? What you'll see is exactly what you just read here. 
You see the Valley of Elah there in the center. The Israelites camped to the north in those mountains, and the Philistines camped to the south in those mountains. And the Valley of Elah is where they would meet for battle. So kind of cool. Like some of you may be, Chris, I can't even trust the word. I would say, man, trust it. All right? We track down, it says, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Now, this word, champion, this is our word. It's not their word. All right? We took this word from them to create our culture. Their word is Habanatha. All it means is one man who stands between two camps. Anything that we do follows this same pattern. MMA is one man who stands between two camps. Basketball is one man who stands between two cities. It's the same story. Like we stole this from their culture. All right. Now, when it says that he was from Gath and that he was six cubits and a span, a cubit is this. It measures from your elbow to the top of your longest finger. So this is my cubit. A lot of you may have a different cubit than me. All right. This is why how things were measured says this is how much this guy was. He was anywhere from eight feet tall to probably nine and a half. And you may say, Chris, that's crazy. Like we don't know anybody this tall. But I would say if you get on Google and you just type in the top 10 tallest people in the world that are alive right now, this isn't far-fetched. It's not far-fetched at all. And in fact, somebody that you all know, Shaquille O'Neal, I grew up watching him play. He was almost as tall. He was about six inches shy of this, 300 and something pounds. Now, in Israelite times, the average Israelite man was only five foot five. That was the average Israelite. I'm 5'10". So if you take five inches away from me and stick me up against an eight footer, guess what? They're going to be a giant. You ever been to an NBA game and sat on the floor? I haven't. (laughs) Would love to. But I've heard that all you can see is that these guys are giants, right? Now, the next thing is that it says that he's from Gath, right? And so as you're tracking this story with me now, just this year, right? We've we've talked about archaeology for a long time and how it's always skewed based upon who's finding it. But for 15 years, they have been uncovering Gath. And they just made it to the public this year because they wanted to make sure that this is the place that they found. And so we have a picture of what, they, of what they've shown the world, all right? It's the front door of Gath, all right? And they waited 15 years to tell you this because they didn't want to be wrong. And so here's the front door of Gath laying in the ground. It's monstrous. And here's what they found out. They said, not only was Gath going on, but they were one of the most advanced civilizations around this era because they were very, very skilled in working with iron and metal. And because they were, they became a dominant force in the era. They were more advanced than Israel themselves is what they believe. This is why when you track down, it talks about all the things that Goliath wears. Verse 5, it says he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him 
because they were known for metalworking. Yeah? Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me into the valley of Elah. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become his subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites dismayed and were terrified. What's he doing here? He's using an old tactic that all humans use. It's called fear. Right? Let me, let me bring you into it. Let me, let me tell you somebody who just copied what he did here. All right? Growing up in the 90s, man, I loved to watch Mike Tyson fight. Did you guys remember Mike Tyson? So about two weeks ago, I'm sick, I'm laying in bed, and I watched the documentary of Mike Tyson. It's called Champs. And you know what he says? He says his entire life, man, he grew up in this horrific place. Like horrific. And so he got into boxing because he was a bully. He was like, I was scared all the time because people beat me up nonstop. So I became a bully because I was scared. And so I got into boxing and I was even more scared. And what happened was my first match, he said, I was freaking out. Actually, he said, I'm free- I was freaking out, man. I was really just freaking out. <laughs> he said, what are you that man right there? And I looked in his eyes and I was like, that dude's more scared than I am. He's scared of me. And that's what happened. Like he looked at the first guy to fight and the guy, he said, I looked in his eyes and I realized he was more terrified of me than I was of him. And so I went out there and I hit him as hard as I could and he fell. He said, in the next fight, I was scared again, but I looked at the guy in front of me and he was more afraid of me than I was of him. And I hit him again. And he said, every fight, I would look in their eyes. Like I would look. That's what you remember when you saw him fight. Like people would be bouncing around. He would be standing still just trying to stare at their eyes. He said, every time I would look. And if they were more afraid of me, I knew I could beat them. He said, where I got in trouble was when they were not afraid of me. And if I couldn't knock them out in the first round, I knew I was beat. He's just taking a page out of Goliath's book. No different. And so for time management, I'm going to kind of keep pushing you because now you're in the story with me. And I'm going to kind of read through some of this really fast because we don't have a lot of time to go into this. But what would happen was is David's brothers, like David is this young kid. His brothers are fighting. They're, they're part of this crew who every time that this Philistine comes out, they freak. They said he did it twice a day, 80 times. And every time, wherever he would stand, the whole army would kind of freak out there. And so David, his dad says, listen, I need to know that my, my sons are okay. Will you take them some bread and bring a report back to me? And he goes up and he brings the bread to his brothers. And as he's standing there, he hears Goliath come out and say these things. And so we're going to pick the story up right there. We're going to pick it up in verse 23. And it says, as he was talking, meaning David, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the men, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He keeps coming out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to anyone who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? So listen, if you've been with us for a while or whether you're just walking with us, let me kind of walk you through this. Circumcision for them was a place for them to say, I have been set apart. Like I am, a, I belong to the living God. I will not do what other nations do. I will not worship what other nations worship. For I belong to him. If you follow this story through the Old Testament, you will see the Lord continually setting his people apart through purification and through rituals. You've seen the New Testament where it got taken too far. But the Lord was always clear that those of us who have hearts have been circumcised, that we are clearly set apart, that we belong to a different family and to a different world. Like this is what Rachel, my wife, is trying to teach herself in this walk, whether she survives it or not. She's like, I don't belong here. I've been set apart for this. David says the same thing. And the, true, the same is true in your life. Like if your heart has been circumcised, if you have been born again, you are set apart. Meaning you don't worship the things that the world worships. And you don't do the things that the world does. Because you are His. And you are called to be holy in this. You don't act the way the world acts. Verse 27, it says, They repeated to him what had been said. They said, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the, with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down here to watch the battle. Now, if you're a church-going kind of guy, was he accurate in his assessment of David's heart? So why did he do this? Man, when I became a Christ follower, I was 24 at the time. Had a lot of friends. They're still my friends today, but I no longer did the things that they did. One of those friends did this exact same thing. My hometown, man, we were tight. We had, our family unit was tight. We would hunt together, fish together, canoe together. We would do, like we did these things in like groups of 50 to 100. One day, my family, they all decided to go to the casino. My friend gets up on the bus and says, hey, Chris wants, to, wants you all to know that he's praying for you and he doesn't agree with what you're doing. I never said any of that. Never even knew they went to the casino. Why did he do that? If you were around somebody who's walking out the righteous life as best that they know how and you're not, what happens to you? You grow angry towards them. Your heart will burn. In this world right now where the people hate the church, they don't really hate the church. Like it's a cop-out. It's a picture of us going, we're trying to walk a righteous life. We're trying to be set apart. Do we do it well all the time? No. But at the end of the day, everyone makes their own decision on who they follow. And so my, my push on you is this. Like if you're not living that kind of life, and you know people who are, and every time you're around them, your heart burns with anger towards them, you're no different than Eliab. At the same time, if you're doing what, if you're following the righteous life, and everybody around you is throwing stones at you, 
It's not your fight. You don't see David engage this. It's not your fight. And so you pursue what you know. The Lord calls you into a relationship with him. And when he calls you into that relationship, you look different. You act different. And the people around you may throw stones. It's not your fight. Yeah? Verse 29, David says, Now what have I done? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before, What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him, for you are just a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Why is this important? We have no record of David fighting a bear, of David fighting a lion. Had his brother Eliab known that he'd killed both the bear and the lion, do you think he might have changed his mind just a little bit on the things that he's done? Your faith, my faith, There are no shortcuts in it. You don't get to start at Christ and confess him and become this awesome dude. Like it doesn't work that way. Like what happens to you is like you get prepared for battle in the times where nobody else knows what you're doing but you. Like the reason that I'm so bold in Christ is because of the breaking that the Lord did in my life from 2007 to 2010. It has little to do with anything else. The reason that I'm how I am and who I am is because the Lord has broke me. And he has taught me these things in the secret where no one knows about them. Except for a handful of three or four people. The same is true for you. Like the Lord molds you in the darkness. For what? For the next thing in your life. And so if I can just lean on you for a second. Like if you're in that mode. Like there's no shortcuts here. Like you become who you are by trusting who God is with you right now. So that when you come to fight the lion and the bear, you will know that he stood with you all the time. And you won't waver from this, the left or the right. Like it will become who you are. But if you choose not to do these things in the darkness, you'll never do them in the light. Does this make sense? And so lean into this. Like this is his method of operation of preparing you in the darkness. Like when you are at your worst, like taking one simple step of obedience in your darkness, he is preparing you for something else. In my breaking stage, I stood there with my pastor going, I don't think I can make it through this. And he said, you will because the Lord is preparing you for something next. It's this story. It's his method of operation. And I am not special. I'm just a guy like you. A quaking Israelite who the Lord is making a little more bold every day because of the things the Lord does in his life. The same is true in you. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. 
David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. Now, theologically, all right, from this day forward, understand this. The difference between Saul and David is vast. David represents in the story the spirit-filled men. He represents a type of Jesus. Saul represents just the, ab- just the abstract of that. Saul is the physical man, the uncircumcised man, the man filled with flesh. And so in this moment when battle comes, Saul does the fleshly thing. And he says, put on this sword, put on this helmet. And David says, I, I don't know these things. Because when this plays out of the New Testament, this is Ephesians 6 called the spirit-filled man. It's about the man who has the righteousness of his brain, the belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness. David had been learning these things his entire life, and he was a young boy. And it's why David could not put on the armor of the flesh because he was already wearing the armor of God. Now, sadly, man, when I've talked to Christians, I wonder if I was to push on them about their prayer life or if I was to push about them on their righteousness, sadly, they would say the same things. I cannot walk in these for I know not them. May it not be so with you. So he took them off. It says, he took the staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, a glowing with, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him, right? The piece of the bully. Saying, you're, you're, you're handsome, and you're full of health? See, evidently, Goliath didn't have either of those. Forty-three, he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I will give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Now, let's walk through this for a second. That word, dog, is not your terminology for dog. It's another Hebrew word, and this is what it's translated to. A male homosexual prostitute. Don't send me any emails. I'm just telling you what it says. So let's read it again. He said, he said to David, am I a male homosexual prostitute that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistines, you come against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin. You come at me with your flesh. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. Now, twice, you just witnessed David say, this isn't my fight. Would you agree with that? Like this dude who's in his young teens just said, this isn't my fight. Although it looks like my fight, 
It's not my fight. He said, this fight belongs to the Lord. Like he already, he already owns it. He's already destroyed you. He goes, you just don't know it yet. Now, when you're the age of 13, how do you understand a concept like this enough to be able to teach it? Because the only way you can teach it is if you lived in it. So how does he, how does he know this? He's 13, 14 years old at this time. Some say maybe he's 16, but he's a young kid. But yet he comes against this guy. How does he know this? How did he learn it? Can we just pause in this story for a second? If you don't catch anything that I tell you today, I need you to catch what's next. Prior to David, there was a man named Joshua. You remember him? In Joshua 5, the Lord comes to him and says, he says, are you my friend or my foe? He said, I'm neither. He said, I am the Lord. I am the commander of all the armies. And it says that Joshua gets down and bows and worships him. Now we know from the story that only, only the Lord accepts worship, like angels will not accept worship. So we know from this context that in Joshua chapter 5, that Joshua met Jesus face to face in some kind of glory form, like not in the real form, but met him face to face and bowed before him. From that moment on, the Lord says, here's how this thing's going to fly. I'm going to go before you in every battle. I'm going to fight for you in every battle. Like when you walk in, all you have to do is take the land because I will throw them into confusion. I will drop hell on their heads. They will kill each other as you walk amongst them because I will go before you after you have done this, right? Do you remember this story? We did it three weeks ago. Now, let me take you back to Joshua chapter 24. Now, Joshua chapter 24 is the end chapter. It's like the covenant renewed. That's what they call it. And it was when the Lord comes and talks to them and Joshua responds. Now, let me explain to you what he says here. He says, I'm going to pick this up in just verse 11. The Lord's talking to them. He's like, then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. If you remember that story, the ark went first and everything split. It's what freaked out all the other nations. He says, the citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. Verse 12, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, you did not do it with your sword, you did not do it with your bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and you eat from their vineyards and olive groves and you did not plant them. Did you hear what he just said? He said, I sent the hornet ahead of you and you possess the land. What's funny about this is like, this isn't the only time that he uses the word hornet. We know from chapter five that he sent Jesus, like Jesus was the commander of the Lord's armies. And so who's the hornet? Jesus. Now, the cool thing about this is like two other times the Lord tells them prior to this time, he goes, I will send the hornet and you will not have to despair. Like I'm going to send the hornet ahead of you. Jesus comes down and says, I am him. Like I am the commander of the Lord's armies. Like I will go before you and fight. And in this story, it's why Joshua was able to destroy 31 kings in seven years. It's the same reason that David was able to destroy Goliath. Are you tracking with this? Because the hornet went ahead of him. The fight wasn't his to fight, and it's not yours either. Now, why is this so important? Like, why is this so important that Jesus is the hornet and that he goes before you to fight? 
Because number one, you got to ask. Like you ask him. Like this has turned my prayer life upside down. Like he went, the hornet went, and he uprooted evil in front. Everywhere he walked, the hornet uprooted the evil prior to the people of God walking in. Why is this so important for us? Why is Jesus the hornet so important? Because this word hornet, it's a plural word. And to help you kind of cross the bridge, it's your same word for like something that you would say like poultry. Like when you say poultry, you say um, it's a mess of them, like truckloads and truckloads. And so although hornet is a plural word, it stands for the Lord's God of God's armies. The word hornet also is singular, meaning that Jesus is the singular commander of them. Fast forward to the New Testament. You remember this story? The hornet's praying in the garden. Some men come. One of his friends kiss him on the side of the cheek. These guys come and arrest him. Peter draws a sword. You remember this out of Matthew? Peter draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus. The hornet stands up and he says, Peter, put your sword up. Because the man who lives by it also dies by it. And then he goes on and says this. He says, do you not know that at any one point I could ask my father and he would send legion upon legion upon legion of angels to rescue me? Why? Because he is the hornet. He's like, I was there when the Red Sea crossed. Ten plagues, that was me. Crossing the Jordan, me again. Routing of 31 kings in seven years, all me. Goliath falling with a, rock, with a little stone, me. Like I did all of this, but yet I submit to five mortal men handcuffing me and walking me down the road to crucifixion. And I submit to three little pieces of metal holding me on a cross. And I submit to not calling on the legions and legions and legions of angels. Why is this important for you? Because without knowing this, you will cheapen grace. Like why is the reason that he did not call all these people down? Why did he do all this? Because he looks at you every day and says that you're worth it. Every day he looks at you and says, you're worth this. You know what? It gets even more hairy than this. Like we're going to back up a little bit to the story in in second, um, in first Samuel 17. I'm just going to tell you what verse it is. As David goes and he cuts off the head of Goliath, it says he kills him first and then he cuts off his head. And you know what he does with that head? The very next verse says that he carries it to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is about a 20-minute hike from where he fought. It's not a big deal for people back in those days to walk 20 miles, but why does he take it to Jerusalem? Like, what's the significance of that one verse saying that he took this to Jerusalem? Because everything in this matters. Every word matters. Every map, it all matters because it all came from the throne room of heaven. 
So let me just lean on you for a second. Extra biblical teaching, right? Christian, Christian faith, Catholic faith, rabbinical faith says this. The reason he took that head to Jerusalem is because he buried it at the place of skulls. If you're familiar with that terminology, like when Jesus was being crucified, it says they brought him to the place of skulls, also known as Golgotha. Rabbinical teaching says that he buried that head on that hill. That word Golgotha has no meaning in the Hebrew text, none whatsoever. It's simply historically a play on words from Golgotha, from from, um, Goliath of Gath to Golgotha. And in the same place that they call the place of skulls, the same place where historically the head of Goliath was buried, Golgotha is the same place the Romans called Calvary. You tracking with this? And so this picture, like big story, you have a giant that comes out with a spirit-filled man who destroys him in the most unconventional way with five stones, picks one, throws it into a sling, and kills the giant, kills the enemy, defeats death. Fast forward, same story, spirit-filled man. Comes to Rome in a time where Rome's under oppression, and everybody hands him a sword and says, take over. And it's like, I didn't come to do it this way. I don't know these tools. But the tools I came to fight with were much different. Although I have those tools in my back pocket, I choose not to use them because this is truly where love wins. And so on the same place where the head of Goliath was buried is the same place where the cross of our Savior defeated death. Are you tracking with this? And you're like, you can't make this up. Like the creator of the universe has ordained every step in this so that you and I will have no excuse when we stand before him. You can't cheapen his grace, much less you don't want to. And that's what we want to do. We want to teach in a way where you know that he is for you. Like in all of this was done so that you would sit here in this room today and know him. That he would reveal himself to you in a new way. And if you've been cheapening his grace, you would stop. Yeah? And so, man, here's, here's how I thought we would do this. Like, we're not supposed to do communion until next week, but I was like, man, let's, let's move it forward, right? Let's move it forward. And, and here's what I want to do. Like, they're going to come, and this time they're going to pass it across. Instead of you getting up, they're going to pass it across to you. Here's some things I want to say to you, all right? Two things. <clears throat> if you've never confessed Jesus as your Lord, refrain, all right? Like if Jesus, like if you believe in Jesus and you like Jesus, but you never got on on your knees and confessed his name as Lord of you, just let that pass by you, all right? It's, it's not that we're trying to be mean, but we're still, what it says is like you've chosen not to sit down at the table with us. Like there are men and women in this room who have chosen to sit down with our Savior at the table until we do it with him for real in heaven. So if you guys want to start passing it, that's cool. And so if you're not a believer, then I would ask you, like, if, if you don't, if your heart's not been circumcised, let it pass, okay? There's nothing magical in it. It's for those of us, man, who have felt his grace in our hearts. The second thing that I would encourage you is this, is like, like, if you have professed the name of Jesus and you have never been baptized, first century church would not have let you participate in the Eucharist. And so I, I would encourage you again, man, to, to today, let it pass. 
Like if you confess Jesus as your Lord, but you've never followed through with baptism, like telling the world that he's Lord of you, like it's all baptism his, then let it pass from you. And instead do this. Take that white card out from the back and say, baptize me. But I would ask you to refrain from today. In the first century church, they're like, if you cannot get baptized, you have no part in the Eucharist with us. Right? And the third group in here is like, man, if you've confessed his name as Lord, and if, man, you follow through with baptism, telling the world that you are his, man, the band's going to sing a couple songs over you, and I'm going to come back and lead you into this. Is that cool? So we're going to just sing a couple verses, and I'm going to lead you in. All right?